radically different things are knowing God through personal study and experiencing Him in the crucible of suffering. In this article that I'm sharing, the podcast that I'm doing, I'm also doing a video as well, I want to walk you through an autobiographical short story of the worst day of my life. It was the day that I met the Lord in the crucible of suffering. Everything changed that day, and it took many years to process his fearful work in my life. The good news is that after he completed this phase of my life, I was on the right track for an unimaginable adventure with God. The title of this article that I'm sharing with you is The Anniversary of the Worst Day of My Life. It was April the 8th, 1988. I am doing, and that was a Friday, by the way, and I am doing this podcast video article on April the 8th, 2022. It is exactly 34 years after that fateful day. That was the day that my wife left me. We had been having arguments for a period. There were things that were going on in our marriage, and neither one of us had enough sense or maturity to know how to work our work our way out of conflict. And unfortunately, the conflict ended in a, a separation, which eventually turned into a divorce. And so what I want to do, because people have asked this question often, I, I want to try to be as thorough and, and clear as I can. And so this will not be a 30 minute podcast. I do not know how long it will go, but I, I want to carefully walk through it. And and again, as always, if you have any questions, I do want to be transparent uh, with our community, and you're welcome to ask those questions on our community forum, and so you're welcome uh, to do that. But I have an article here. Uh, it is brief. I also have this video that I'm creating in real time. And then I have the podcast, those, those of you who are listening to the audio version. By the way, if you are watching the video on YouTube or Rumble, if you would subscribe to those platforms, I really would appreciate it. It will help us to reach more people. And organically is how we grow. And so you can share our resources with anyone that you wish. Our resources are free. We made a decision a, a long time ago that we would give our resources away and we would trust the Lord that he would move just enough hearts who are able to be able to underwrite our ministry. And so we do have a few people that support us on a monthly and annual basis. And because of their generosity, we're able to provide these resources. We're able to provide this amazing website uh, to the world at large. And so anybody globally who has access to the internet can come and they can read, they can watch, they can listen to our resources. And, and hopefully benefit from the transformative work of God in their lives. And I do want to thank those of you who support our ministry. For those of you who aren't able to support, you can support by sharing our resources. You can support by subscribing to the platform that you prefer uh, to catch the first glimpse of our resources. You can support by writing a review, for example, on the podcast uh, platform, and that would really help us. And so if you would do that, I would appreciate it. And so let me jump into this article, this podcast, the video, the anniversary of the worst day of 
of my life. I want to begin by sharing, uh, in fact, I will share several verses with you throughout this uh, podcast, but one of those is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, and it says this, "...for to this you have been called." Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Now, there is no question back in 1988, I did not have a robust theology of suffering. I knew suffering because I had suffered many years uh, in my life through a horrific past with an abusive drunkard uh, father, uh, brothers. Uh, we were just hellions is who we were, four out of five of us boys were in jail or prison at one point in our lives, all before our 20th birthdays. And so I was familiar with suffering, but when I became a Christian, I did not have that kind of awareness. I did not have a theology of suffering. In fact, I was so naive that I thought that my life would be, my life would be okay after God regenerated me. Now, in 1988, when my wife left me, it was uh, I had been a Christian for four years. Uh, God regenerated me in the fall of 1984, and so I began to grow up in Christ as a newborn babe, but I did not know much of anything by 1988. I was in Bible college at that time when God regenerated me in the fall of 84. I began to look for a church, and I ended up being part of a fundamentalist Baptist church, an independent Baptist church. We believe that the King James Version of the Bible, the 1611 edition, was the only version that was acceptable. We had a lot of rules. Uh, we lived a legalistic life. And I, I loved legalism because I love rules. I just needed somebody to tell me how to live the Christian life. Being reared in an authoritarian home with an abusive father, you do learn conditional relationships. I will love you as long as you perform, as long as you meet my uh, meet my uh, preferences, meet my expectations. Of course, when I say I will love you as long as, love is a little bit of a stretch. I, my dad did not love me at all. But what, what that really means is we will somewhat get along with each other if you do everything that I ask you to do everything that I expect you to do. And so I spent 25 years understanding conditional authoritarian relationships. And so it was a natural fit for me to go into uh, independent Baptist circles because that is a legalistic culture. And so they tell you how to live and how not to live, and you toe the line. You conform to their rigid way of living out their religion. Now, when I say that, I'm not saying that they're insincere as though they are not Christians. I have many many brothers and sisters who who really do love the Lord, but they are part of that legalistic culture. And that is a whole nother podcast. And there's several more articles. By the way, if you type fundamentalism in the search box of our website, 
or type legalism. Either one of those words, you'll find a lot of material that I have already produced on that. And if you are in a legalistic environment or know someone that is or you want to learn more about it, I have a lot of resources that I think will benefit you. But again, it was a natural fit for me to go into a legalistic culture because of my former manner of life, as Paul talked about in Ephesians 4.22, that we have, as Christians, a life that we lived before we became Christians. And we bring parts or all of that life into our Christian experience, at least initially, because we are excuse me, we are not perfectly sanctified uh, when we become Christians. We have definitive sanctification, excuse me, which means that we have all that we need for life and godliness, but we're not living it practically out. And so therefore, we bring our past experience into our Christian walk. And And a huge part, a significant part of my Christian experience was uh, legalism, basically, living with an authoritarian, abusive dad. And so again, again, it was like a hand and and glove. And I had no problem with this because it was a sanctified hand and a glove, and they were telling me how to live righteously righteously and how to walk in holiness. And so those were uh, my early upbringing as a newborn babe in Christ. And by the time 1988 rolled around, four years later, I had moved from my hometown, which is right outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, to Greenville, South Carolina, which is where I am today, some 34 years later. I went down to Greenville to go to a Bible college. It it was an independent Baptist Bible college, and that's where I received my two undergraduate degrees. But as a freshman in college in 1986, and so I was regenerated in 84, I was in Bible college in August of of 1986. In 1988, on April the 8th, I was wrapping up my second year, my sophomore year in Bible college. Now, I want you to think about that. Here is a young punk kid who was 25 years old when God regenerated him, and so now he's 27 years old, just two years later, and he's a freshman in Bible college moving into the pastorate. Uh, That was naive. It was naive on my part, and it was definitely naive on those who were mentoring me, pastors and deacons and uh, other leaders of our church who sent me off way too soon. I had no time in grade. I had no experience. Now, please understand that I'm not blaming them at all. I have no blame whatsoever uh, on them, but there is culpability there in the sense that they— Anybody should know better that you you take a a kid like me who has spent two and a half decades in an authoritarian, abusive environment, who's working through all kinds of dysfunction and complexity, and within two years, you send him off to a Bible college as though he knows how to be a man, as though he knows how to uh, be a husband and, and to be a father. I did not know those things, the template that I had for a husband was from my daddy, and the template that I had for being a father was from my daddy primarily, which means I had a whacked template. 
I didn't know how to be a man. I didn't know how to be a husband. I did not know how to uh, be a, a father. I didn't know how to be a Christian man. I did not know biblical maturity. And now I am away from those people who know me in my local church, and I am inside of a, a Bible college system where we did not have that kind of direct mentorship. I mean, we were there. We were studying the scriptures. We were growing academically as far as understanding understanding the Bible, but there was no Paul coming alongside any of us Timothys that was teaching us, uh, understanding our former manner of lives and, and some of the complexities that we were bringing into our Christian experience. And, and so we were pretty much on our own. And my wife, uh, of course, was in a, a similar boat where she did not have a good template. She didn't have biblical Christian upbringing. She had superficial Southern Christian upbringing and learning the social the, the, the socialness of Christianity, uh, but not being versed in the Bible. And so neither one of us were versed uh, in Scripture. None of us knew how, to, uh, neither one of us knew how to grow uh, in biblical maturity. And so I was in a straight up academic environment. And of course, my wife uh, was not in that environment at, at all as she came down here with me, with us, our two children, and went right into the work environment. And so in many ways, we were living separate lives. Uh, all during our marriage, or shortly after we were married, we got married in 1979. And so when God regenerated me in 1984, I had been married for five years. We had two children at that time. And then in 19. Uh, 86, we moved down uh, to Greenville. We'd been married for seven years. And then in 1988, of course, we'd been married for nine years. And many of those years were just up and down. There were good times. I mean, it wasn't all bad, uh, but there were life-dominating sin issues on both of our parts. Mine was anger. Uh, that has been one of my biggest sin issues in, the, in, in my entire life, uh, from as early as I can remember. It was my response mechanism to work through some of the challenges in my, in my childhood, and, and anger was the only way that I could, that seemingly I could act out and, and try to find relief or escape and trying to work through some of the early dysfunction. And so I brought uh, that sin pattern into our marriage. And then, of course, my uh, ex-wife had issues as well that she struggled with. And so we were uh, we were somewhat combatants uh, when they weren't civil times. And again, I do want you to know that there were civil times. We did have a lot of fun together, and there was uh, some excellent interaction, and there was some just very positive moments. But there was this layer of dysfunction that, that was mapped over both of our lives, and it created conflict uh, in our marriage, hoping that Christianity would be uh, the panacea, that Christianity would be the thing that would straighten us both out and, and give us a, a marriage that would glorify God. But the problem is, is that Christianity can't do that for an individual or a couple. The Bible can't. It would just have to be a miracle 
Because if you don't have outside inter- intervention, if you don't have people that have a level of competence and courage to come alongside you and to speak into your life, well, then you have to figure it out on your own. So what you have are two immature kids who are not versed in Scripture. Uh, as I've said often, I did not know John three sixteen when God regenerated me. I remember shortly after God saved me, I was working in a machine shop in North Carolina, and I I, I remember seeing the words John three sixteen on this dude's t-shirt on television, and I began asking people, the, the people that I worked with at the machine shop, I began to ask them, what does that mean. And I remember uh, it was probably a couple of nights later, it was on third shift, where this uh, gentleman named Mike Burleson, he came up to me to my station at my machine, and he said, I I know John 3.16, and Mike pointed it to me uh, in the Bible. And that was the first time that I ever laid eyes on on John 3.16 that I recall. And that was a few days or weeks after uh, God regenerated me. And so a person who is that immature in Scripture and immature in life, who is supposed to lead a wife and lead his life and to rear children, well, that is a big ask without uh, outside intervention, without having that Paul that I needed and that Paulette that my uh, wife needed. So we were pretty much on our own. And again, I'll just restate one more time that uh, I'm not blaming the independent Baptist culture. That's just who they are. They are not intentionally intrusive. Uh, for the most part, the independent Baptist culture is is, is somewhat paranoid. Uh, they struggle with fear of man to where uh, they don't like talking about their foibles and the things that's wrong with them. And so they keep those things tucked away and they live kind of an insecure and fearful life because there is a punitiveness in that kind of culture in, in many aspects of the independent Baptist culture where there is heavy judgmentalism, and that's one of the reasons that legalism thrives is because everybody wants to obey the rules, obey the protocols, a certain code of conduct, and as long as everyone conforms to this expected code of conduct, well, then you don't have to reveal much about yourself at all, and then you can be somewhat impervious to judgment because nobody really knows who you are at the core of your being. And so I just learned the ropes of Christianity as it was communicated me to me within a legalistic independent Baptist uh, worldview. And that worked fine up to a point, but yet we still had these underlying problems in our lives. And so here we are two years later in Greenville, South Carolina, wrapping up my second year of, of Bible college. I worked at a machine, uh, I worked at a recycling facility back then from 1986 to around 1992, 93, right in there. It was the job that I got uh, when I rolled into uh, Greenville. Uh, in in um, I think uh, I was here in May of 1986, and so I I got a job in May, and then I started college in August of 1986, and I worked at the recycling facility. We recycled aluminum aluminum cans, and so here we are, two years later. Now is April uh, 1988. 
and I'm leaving my recycling facility and I'm heading home, which is about three to four miles down the road. And it was 5.05 p.m. when I walked into our small double-wide mobile home as I just got off from work and I saw that the piano was missing. We had a piano uh, that I had bought uh, while we were here in Greenville in those first couple of years. And when I saw the piano was gone, I immediately knew that my wife and my children were gone. It was obvious. I did not think that they were going to leave. I knew that we were having marriage problems, but it never occurred to me that it was at that level. And when I saw the piano was gone, well, I knew that they had left, that they were not there. And so what I did is I, I, I just ran through our mobile home. I ran through the house. And the reason I was running through the house is I was looking for them. I, I looked in the bedroom. I looked in the closet. But part of that, I was looking for them, but I, was, I wanted to affirm what I already knew. The clothes were gone. The beds were gone. Uh, the kids' beds were gone. Ours uh, was not. And what she had done is that she had um, had contacted her, her dad and her brother, I believe, or brother, she had two, uh, but contacted her family and said that I am uh, leaving Rick. And so she had strategized this. She had planned this. And so when I went to work that morning, uh, she took a day off from her work. And then uh, they came down, they met her, and then they took what they needed uh, from the house. And of course, that's what I saw at 5.05 in the afternoon on April the 8th. I do say this, that if you could moment lose your mind. Well, I lost mine. I just lost my mind to the point that I was looking for my family uh, in the closets, in the drawers of, of the kitchen. I was running through the house uh, just frantically. I would, it, it, it was the most intense panic attack that I think you can have. It, it was something akin to an epileptic fit in that it, is such an intense, uh, it was such an intense uh, moment that my mind was racing. And my mind was redlining as far as anxiety and fear and panic panic. And then after exhausting virtually every uh, inch of the house, I came back and I, I was running down the little hallway in our double wide mobile home and I fell uh, on the ground or, or, or on the floor and I was heaving. I was just breathing deeply, trying to catch my breath. I was exhausted. I was out of breath. I was panicked, and I was just full of fear. I caught it. I call it being uh, beyond tears because I couldn't cry. I could. I could hardly breathe. And being the legalist that I was, it's phenomenal at some of the things that you can think about in the worst moments of your life. Well, you know. I came home at 5.05, and I needed to be in, in class at 6 p.m. Uh, we went to uh, a school at night uh, in, in our uh, Bible college. Uh, they set it up that way intentionally so that folks, that the students could have jobs and work their way through school and work during the day and go to Bible college at night. And so we did Monday through Friday. Wednesday night, we went to the church meeting. Uh, at the Baptist Church, uh, but Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday, it was a full load of classes, and being the good legalist that I was, uh, simultaneous to my panic, I knew uh, that I needed to be in Bible college that night, and so uh, I made my way to the shower, and I 
put on my suit, my coat and tie, and I made my way to the Bible college. By the way, I had not missed uh, an entire I had not missed any school up to that point. Uh, I was there every night, uh, never missed a class up till April 8th, 1988. And I, I made it there that night. Uh, and I, I sat in class, and, and class ended at 9.30, by the way, and I remember sitting there, and I was asking the Lord, you know, God, if you, you make these classes go to midnight, that'll be okay. You've never done that before, but uh, this would be a wonderful night to extend these classes to 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, because I did not want to go home. And it's kind of interesting that on that particular night, we had a substitute teacher for the last class class started at uh, 8.30, right about that time, and then uh, the teacher taught till uh, 9 p.m. It was supposed to go to 9.30, and he looked at the clock, and he said, well, you know, that's all I have, and he dismissed us at 9 o'clock, and I thought, how ironic of all the nights that we would go home early would be this night, because I did not want to go home. I did not want to revisit what I just left uh, shortly after 5 p.m. that afternoon. Well, around now 9.30 that evening, I was home, and I was sitting in uh, the living room. I was sitting on the floor, and I had my large King James Bible sitting beside me. I had already memorized Psalm 51. That was David's penitent, uh, uh, pentative prayer, uh, but I wanted to open it up to Psalm 51 anyway and just 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 stare at the text. And I stared at the first two words in the King James. The first two words are, have mercy. And that's the only two words that I, I remember. And then I just fell over on the floor, and then I, I just wept. The next morning, I, I got up and I got up from bed uh, in our bedroom, and I, I, don't, I don't remember how that happened because I have no memory whatsoever of what happened after I fell over on the floor and, and begged God to have mercy, but I do remember getting up uh, from the bed, and I went to work uh, that day. Saturday morning, I had to be at work, and so as a, a good legalist as I am, I went and I did my job. I showed up at school that evening, and I, I showed up at work the next day on Saturday morning. Now, one of the interesting things about work is that, again, it was at a, a can, a soda can, or beer can for that matter. It was at a can, aluminum can recycling uh, facility. And they had, uh, we used to weigh the cans on these uh, four by four floor scales. And so we would set the bags on these, this four by four floor scale, and it would have a digital readout that would tell how many pounds uh, the aluminum cans were. And then we would pay the person uh, so many uh, cents a pound, 30 cents a pound, 60 cents a pound, depending on what uh, the market, the commodity, the commodity market was for the aluminum can. Well, when I left on Friday afternoon at 5 p.m. when I left work. Uh, I always stepped on those scales and just looked at the digital readout, just a habit that I had developed. And on that particular day, Friday, April the 8th, I stepped on those floor scales and I weighed 168 pounds. Well, it was 50, it was 15 hours later on Saturday morning when I walked into the recycling facility and I stepped on those scales again. And when I stepped on those scales, I weighed 158 pounds 
pounds. I had lost 10 pounds in 15 hours. That was, that is a true story. It's absolutely true. I don't know how it happened. I have no recall whatsoever of what happened after 9.30 p.m. Friday night and when I uh, got up out of bed that morning and made my way to work. Uh, But I had lost 10 pounds in 15 hours and that was day one. It was the beginning of sorrows, and it was an amazing. It was an amazingly hard time in my life, and that season went on for almost uh, ten years. And there were many ups and downs during that season. But the first day, uh, as I've just explained to you, was just it was just a gut rich gut-wrenching day uh, as my life was completely flipped upside down. Jonah said it this way in 4.3. He says, Oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And that is how I felt. Uh, I wouldn't say that I was suicidal in the sense of being intentionally suicidal because I was chicken. Uh, I never came to the place to where I would take my life, but I I did come to the place where I I asked the Lord to take my life, that he would just uh, sneak up on me, so to speak, and and take take my life from me because I just did not uh, want to live any longer. It was so complicated. It was so devastating. It was so dark. It was so heavy. Well, obviously, the Lord did not kill me. He he not only did not take my life, but he would not remove my sorrow, uh, my suffering from me. And so after three years of, of constant sorrow, I, I finally came to the place of, of admitting how angry I how angry I was, and honestly, uh, ultimately, my anger was toward the Lord, but it took me a long time to admit that. At first, I I blamed my wife uh, for uh, what was happening to me, and then uh, I, I, I blamed myself, of course, uh, for what was going on. I, I blamed fundamentalism. I blamed the church. I blamed the school. And, and I was looking out horizontally and, and just finding people to blame, including myself, because, again, there had to be a reason to explain this. And what I couldn't do or what I wouldn't do is that I would not look upward and I, I would not even consider that God would be permitting these things in my life because that was too complicated. It's easier to say that woman you gave me, that's the reason that I'm going through what I'm going through or or even, you know, personal, you know, self-condemnation. Uh, it would be easier to do that. But once you look vertically and recognize that God is sovereign, that God somehow, some way is part of the mess that you're in, well, then that really changes things. And it can complicate a person's soul, especially if they have a weak theology of suffering and a weak view of sovereignty. And, and one of the ways or, or how I came to this point is that in Jeremiah 1.5, the text says something like, before I formed you, I called you to be a, a prophet to the nations. And I began to see in that text that, that God in eternity past had a mind and a, and a, and a narrative and a plan uh, for Jeremiah. And of course, we see uh, the mind of God in Ephesians 1, that God predetermined our, our salvation as you read those beautiful verses in Ephesians 
uh, chapter one that we have to recognize that not, not only is God sovereign, but but God is omniscient as well. Meaning, God cannot add any knowledge to the knowledge that He has. Uh, that God is fully aware, and, and, and there's nothing less than or more than. Meaning, He is complete knowledge, or He is omniscient. Meaning that God uh, knew that these things would happen in my life even before I was born, and so I began to think about the chronology of it all. God in eternity past knew that these things were going to happen, and then God allowed me to be born into this world in 1959, which is when I was born, and then God would allow me to be married in 1979, some 20 years later. I was 19 years old when I got I got married. These things did not sneak up on God. He knew all these things in eternity past, and so I would be born in 1959. I would be married in 1979. I would be regenerated in 1984. My wife would leave in in 1988. God knew all these things. And so I had to begin to, I had to force myself to stop blaming all of these horizontal secondary causes. Now, definitely those are secondary causes. Uh, We talk about primary cause and secondary cause in theology. You know what Joseph said, that that ye meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And so you, you meant it for evil. You were secondary cause agents, but ultimately there was a primary causal force here, and that primary causal force is God Almighty himself. And so as secondary cause agents, you Yes, I contributed to what's going on. My my ex-wife contributed to what is going on. Fundamentalism contributed to what's going on. But there is a higher causal agent here, a primary causal agent, and agent, and his name is God Almighty. And so, rather than uh, landing on these sublunary <clears throat> horizontal plane actors uh, who are part of this process. And yeah, there's repentance to be had. There's sin to be attributed to all of us as secondary bit players in this greater narrative that God is writing. But ultimately, I had to think that God is the one. He is the one that is behind it all. And when I began to think that way, then then God began to uh, change how I thought about my own life, my existence, my suffering, and, and the plans that he had for me. It was a game changer without question. Job said it this way in Job 23. He says, but he is unchangeable who could turn him back what he desires that he does, for he will complete what he appoints for me and many such things are in his mind. I do remember that uh, I quit God for the 487th time. Now, I'm making that number up. It's hyperbole. But I quit God over and over again. It's just like, I just can't go on anymore. And I remember one of those moments, uh, it, it, the most vivid moment when I quit the Lord. And again, I just make up a number 487 times. I don't know how many times I quit God during this season, but I quit God. And I was laying on the floor in, in where I was living. I was living in a trailer. By this time, I had moved because uh, I had um, I had lost my job. I had uh I was divorced. I'd lost the children. We had 3.42 acres back home in North Carolina. We had to dissolve that uh, through the divorce. So I lost all of that money. And 
I, I didn't have anything, and so I could only afford uh, this little uh, single wide house trailer at this point that was in the woods uh, that was further out uh, from Greenville, and I lived there for four years, and, and that's a whole other story, but it was a disaster, let me just say that. And so as I was living there for those few years, uh, I quit God again, and I remember I was laying on the floor and I was praying, uh, face down on the floor. My Bible was at my head, and I was going through Scripture and praying, and then I was just so frustrated. I just said, you know, I just quit. I just quit. I'm done. I'm done, and that was the last time, and so what I did is I rolled over on my back, and I was just staring at the ceiling because I didn't know what to do when you quit God. I mean, how do you quit God? You just roll over on your back and stare at the ceiling, and so that's what I did, and it was at that moment that Ken Smith, one of my college colleagues, called, and he told me, he said, uh, Rick, I don't know why I'm calling you, but uh, God has placed you on my heart, and I just want to call, and I just want to encourage you. And I was bawling at that time when he said that. I mean, it's like the tears were like fountains that were shooting out of my eye sockets. And, and we talked for a little bit, don't remember what we talked about, but Ken Smith was an encouragement to me that night. And then after he hung up, what I did is I rolled back over, and it was as though the Lord was telling me that you need to read uh, the book of Job. And so I started reading the book of Job, and I spent four years reading the book of Job because I understood Job as a journey to where God turned the captivity of Job. In verse number 10 of chapter 42, he turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. And so I knew that Job came out in a good conclusion, even though there was a lot of collateral damage uh, throughout the book, but I knew that he came to a better place in his life, and so I wanted to follow uh, the book of Job. I wanted to learn about those things, his story. That's why I recited to you or, or, or read to you just a few moments ago, Job 23, verses 13 and, and 14. And so I wanted to learn, and so I started reading the book of Job that night right after Ken Smith uh, called me and just wanted to uh, encourage me. And so the old story of Job began to echo in my mind, and I began to understand that the Lord would eventually complete for me what he completed for him. Didn't know when, didn't know how, uh, but as God was... Uh, teaching me this this theology of, of suffering. And one of the ways that he did that is that he, he used Scripture uh, to, to affect my soul. And there were two particular verses uh, that he used. There were many, but there were two in particular uh, where he began to convince me that he had a greater narrative uh, in mind. And the first one was 1 John 3, 1, where uh, John is writing and said, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. And so I began to think about that passage of Scripture that God uh, that he has a manner of love that he bestows upon us, that we are children of God. And so as I was thinking about how God loves his children, uh, then my mind shot all the way over to the Old Testament in Isaiah 53, 
where he had another child. His name was Jesus. And so I began to think about the manner of love that the Father bestows upon his children, that we should be called the sons of God. And so I was thinking about the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And so as I left 1 John 3, 1, I went over to Isaiah 53, 10, where it says this, it pleased the Lord to crush him. And when I, when I, brought that text up to my mind, I began to think, well, you had a son of God once upon a time, and it pleased you to crush him. You crushed him because you had a greater good. You were writing a more transcendent narrative in his life, also in our life. And so if you would crush the son of God, if you would crush your own son for a greater purpose or narrative, then what would you do with me? What manner of love would you have for me? Well, that manner of love can be so broad and deep that it can include crushing. And I began to connect the dots in my mind that God loves me too and that he loves me so much that he is going to crush me too in my own unique way. Therefore, that is what he is doing in my life. And when that dot began to connect in my mind, Well, then I began to walk out a process of repentance. Now, it took four miserable years of going through the book of Job to walk out uh, that kind of repentance. But afterward, or maybe I should say during this process, God reassured me time and time again that there was a purpose in this crushing uh, that I was going through, even though it was utterly and mysteriously vague. God does not give you the the prescribed, he, he doesn't lay out the outcome of why all these things are happening in our lives, but he does give us hope that there is a good, there is a, a good narrative that's being wound into our lives, that, that this thread, this redemptive thread is being uh, woven into our lives. And that is what I believed, even though I did not know how in the world he was ever going to make it happen. And so as I was walking out repentance, as I was going through the book of Job, it was still another five years years before I even saw the faintest glimpse of what I thought his past assurance meant way back when. And so when God gives you assurance and hope that that there is a greater narrative, it doesn't mean that the details are forthcoming. The details can be years later. And in my case, the details of the hope that I received was five years later. I tell people that I went to Bible college for four years to learn about God, and then I went into the wilderness for nine years uh, to experience Him. And those are two different uh, aspects of knowing God. You can know Him in a knowledgeable way, but to learn Him experientially is a more profound way uh, to know God. You need both. You need a theological foundation You need a knowledge base. You need a doctrinal base of knowing who God is. Uh, But those who find their greatest usefulness in God's kingdom not only have an ever-growing 
doctrinal base, uh, but they also have an ever-growing experiential base or, or, or set a foundation that's set on top of that, and that experiential base has a lot to do with suffering. It reminds me of Mark 1, uh, 11. In Mark 1, 11, I was reading that one day many decades ago, and, and, and the verse says this, and there's a voice that came from heaven that says, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I tell people sometimes that if you put your hand over that that text as far as what's following and just read, you are my beloved son in, in whom I'm well pleased. And what you would recognize is that Jesus has been growing in stature with the Lord as we read in Luke 2.42, I think. And so Jesus has been maturing for, for 30 years, for three decades. And then he gets baptized, which is what Mark 1.11 is talking about. He gets baptized, and 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 the heavens open up, and and you hear this voice from heaven: "You're my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased." And you would assume that the very next thing that's going to happen is that he's going to step out on his public platform and going to say, "Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand." Now it's time for you to go into public ministry. Well, when you read Mark one eleven and don't read verse 12, that's what you could easily assume, but actually this is what verse 12 says. Verse 11 says, you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, verse 12 says, and the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was and he was with wild, the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. And so the next thing that happened to God, happened to Christ after 30 years of growing and in the Lord is that he was baptized and he went right into the wilderness. After meeting God in the wilderness, he began to see with different eyes. The Lord wanted me to see things differently. How could I serve him in his world without sympathizing with my Savior? and other sufferers too. God was creatively working in me to bring shape to my theology of suffering worldview. Job said it this way as he got to the end of his book. He says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Job was a very righteous man, you know, as he thought of himself and was doing all things right, but God took him down several notches and, and through the ordeal of, of what we read in the 42 chapters of Job, he finally got to the place to uh, where he had heard of Job in the Bible college, but then he began to see Job in a new and different way, and God was doing that to me as well. The Lord took away everything that was dear to me. I was single, I was fatherless, I was penniless, I was homeless with no future hope of restoration on any front or even a future that would be any different from my present darkness. I described it this way. It's kind of like in in, uh, Exodus 10.21 where it talks about one of the plagues that Moses uh, brought upon Egypt, and it says he stretched out his hand toward heaven and 
that there was darkness over the land, and it said that the darkness could be felt. When you can feel darkness, that is really dark. And so when I stood out on the uh, the periphery of time and, and I stared into the future, all I saw was more darkness, and that's how I felt. There is a normal darkness that can come over the soul, and there is a darkness of the soul that you can feel deeply. And it was this latter darkness that just transcends words. There's no words for this. Sublunary language never reaches the height or the depth of this kind of darkness. You feel it. You feel the darkness as though you can't articulate it. It is deeper than deep, of which there is only one cure. And that one cure is, is that you have to die. It reminds me of John 12, 24. It's one of my favorite verses where Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And I began to realize that what God was doing to me, he was, he was incrementally, systematically bringing me to a, a point of death. What I could not see, what I was afraid to see, what I refused to see was the Lord. I did not want to look at God. I did not want to know God this way. I did not want to meet God in the crucible of suffering. I did not want to stare uh, into my death. And that's when it first dawned on me. This was my epiphany. As I stated earlier, God did have a son. And it was the will of the Lord to crush his son. It was the will of the Lord to put him to grief. And now I am one of his sons, and you are one of his sons or one of his daughters too. Why should I consider it a strange thing for my father to make me walk in the steps of his beloved son as I led this podcast earlier, First Peter 2.21, as he suffered that we are to walk in his steps. And so I began to pray for God's forgiveness I began to beg God to have mercy upon my stubborn, self-righteous, angry, demanding soul that that I began I wanted I began to see things his way and, and I wanted him to continue to help me to see things his way and then God did forgive me. I did repent, but it wasn't repentance as though I was changed at that point. It was like I'm walking out repentance. It was like the starting point. It's like the beginning of a marathon. Now I finally got on the track where I can run this marathon because nothing changed. As I acknowledge these things, as I begin to see these things, as the light began to break into my darkness, I begin to be aware of these things. Nothing changed except I could see, I could, I could seem to perceive a sprinkle of hope that was coming like a a small cloud forming in the sky about the size of a man's hand. That's quoting 1 Kings 18, 43 through 44, where Elijah went up on the hill and he began to see that there was a small cloud forming about the size of a man's hand. And eventually the rain did come. Eventually it did. As Paul said in Philippians 1, 6, and you can count on this. Paul said, I am sure of this. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of our 
Lord Jesus Christ. And so as I began to walk out repentance, repenting of my self-righteousness, my arrogance, my, my anger, re- re- repenting of, of my sin against other people, as I was blaming these secondary calls agents for what was happening in my life, God was preparing me to, to serve others. And though it took many, many years before the Lord would release me to launch this ministry here. In his divine wisdom, what I do today was born. In many ways, it was born on April the 8th, 1988. Jesus said it this way in Mark 10:45, I didn't come here. I didn't come here to be served, but I came here to serve. I often think of what it would be like if I had graduated Bible college and, and went off into the pastorate as an independent fundamental Baptist. And again, I don't, I don't want you to, I'm not throwing shade on them. I'm not. But I do know if I was that kind of person today, uh, it is radically different from who I am today. And I'd much rather be who I am and, and maturing in the direction that I am maturing than to be that person, that day back then uh, as an independent Baptist standing in pulpits at different places yelling at people and and so forth and so on and living such a rigid legalistic lifestyle I thank God uh, that he pulled me out and I would say pulled me out extracted me dropped a bomb in my pond and and blew me out into these other waters and he changed me doctrinally theologically he he changed me religiously he changed my christianity he changed my soul he changed my worldview he changed my presuppositions he changed my practices my understanding and application of scripture dramatically uh, it, it, it is just unbelievable at the difference that God has made, but the only way that that difference could happen is through the crucible of suffering. As someone once said, there is a simplicity on the other side of complexity, uh, but you have to go through that complexity in order to step into that place of rest that transcends all other rest known to humanity. And I would say at this point in my life, I've never been more content in my entire life. The title of this podcast is The Anniversary of the Worst Day of My Life. I have some notes here. Uh, You can just type the word anniversary into our search box and you can find this video. You can find this podcast. Uh, You can also find these notes. And I do have one final thing that I want to share with you. If you want to read an autobiographical journey of this ordeal, which gets into more detail, then I'm going to appeal to you to get my book, Suffering Well, How to Steward God's Most Feared Blessing. That is the book. Uh, When I began this four-year journey through Job many decades ago now, I told the Lord that I want to take copious mental notes. I do not want to forget this because I do not want to repeat this. And so I want to learn. I want to be that student. And so I beg God to teach me these things and to imprint them on my mind. And then maybe someday I could share them. Well, it was 30 years later or four years ago that I sat down and I began to take all of those things that he taught me way back 
then, three decades earlier. And I wrote this book, Suffering Well. And so I, I, I just go through Job from 1 to 42, and it's kind of a hybrid of Job's journey and, and my journey as I talk about the lessons that I learned from Job. And I commend this book to you. I, I encourage you to get it and, and to read it. Again, it's a play on words. It's suffering well. We have no other option but to suffer. You will suffer. I will suffer. There's more suffering to come. And so the option is, are you going to suffer well or are you going to suffer poorly? Those are the options. But suffering is not. Suffering is the only option we have, and you have to decide how you want to suffer. This subtitle of this book is How to Steward God's Most Feared Blessing. In 325, Job said that the thing that I have feared has come upon me. Job was a legalist, and he was afraid that his children were going to mess up, and so he sacrificed extra. He went a little above board trying to manipulate God, trying to steer God into blessing him because of his uh, holiness, because of his righteousness. The thing that he feared did come upon him. Well, in an analogous way, we too fear suffering. And so we have to learn how to steward God's most feared blessing. Ultimately, suffering is a blessing, but stewarding that suffering is not an easy thing to do. I was counseling a couple many years ago, and uh, the husband committed adultery. And as we got uh, into the process and farther along, the wife actually said something like that, that she is learning how to, to handle suffering. And I don't remember the exact words that she used, but when she said whatever it is that she said, that's when uh, this line came into my mind. That's where it came from. And I said to her, you're learning how to steward God's most feared blessing. In her world, God's most feared blessing was, in her case, her husband committing adultery. But in her maturity, she was stewarding it, stewarding it well. And so I just blurted that out in a counseling session. You're learning how to steward God's most feared blessing. And then I pinned it. It's like, I'm going to use that sometime. Well, their marriage is doing well today. They've been doing well for many years. She has stewarded this thing that she did not want, that no wife or husband would ever want, but they stewarded it well, and they are maturing in their marriage. We all have to learn how to steward God's most feared blessing. His most feared blessing is suffering in whatever form that it takes. At the bottom of this article, at the call to action, I have several quotes that were not solicited, but things that people have said about this book, Suffering Well. And there's a link here in the article. Again, the, the title of the article is The Anniversary of the Worst Day of My Life. And there's a handful of people here. There's more. I just took a few of them. And uh, I wanted to share those with you because I want you to know that God is using, has been using this suffering in people's lives. And one of the ways that he's been using this suffering is not just through our website and our ministry, but also through this book, Suffering Well. And so I encourage you to get it. Pat said, this book saved my life. Rachel said, one of the best books I have read, highly recommend. Carrie said, Rick's book on Suffering Well has been life-changing for me and found in the Lord's perfect time. If the, Amazon, if the Amazon sales are up, it may be because I have shared this book with so many. Thank you, Carrie. 
McCoy said, this book changed my life, and I highly recommend it to anyone who finds comfort or challenge uh, in it. Uh, Amy said, Suffering Well is the most influential book that I've ever read, and apart from the Bible itself, it has done more to minister to me than anyone else. Grateful said, this is anonymous, is the book Suffering Well available on CD? Uh, no, not yet. It is the best book that I've ever read. I would love to be able to listen to it when I walk. Thank you. And that was signed grateful. Lori said, this book is so helpful and informative. It is full of great biblical truths that, if applied, have the ability to carry you through your time of suffering and trial. And then finally, Kim said, this book did more to realign my thinking to God's way than any other book I've ever read. You all showed me how to grow in my suffering by putting into action God's word in practical ways that are truly transforming. Thank you, signed Kim. Those are just a few, and there's many others, people who have commented on uh, the book Suffering Well, and I do commend it to you. Again, the anniversary of the worst day of my life. I am uh, dropping this on April the 8th, uh, 2022, 34 years after that day. And it has been good to look in the rearview mirror and see so clearly what was so dark, what was so confusing, what was so blurry uh, back then. And that is the hope uh, that we have. That is the hope that you have, that God is working a narrative that is far beyond anything that we could ask or think. If you need help, in addition to the hope that you receive from this ministry, please reach out to us and let us know. It would be our pleasure, it would be our joy uh, to come alongside you and to help you in any way that we can. You have been listening to Life Over Coffee with Rick Thomas. If you have a question for Rick, you can let him know by sending him a note through his website, rickthomas.net. That's rickthomas.net. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your coffee.